Amen. If you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 13. Uh, I do think that I'll probably not talk for an hour today, but that's not a promise by any stretch of the imagination. Last week we read about uh, uh, sort of the personal, so let me back up, Jeremiah is, is prophesying to the nation of Judah, to his um, sort of his, his homeland, to the people there who, are, who have rejected the Lord and they're about ready to get judged, and, um, and he's preaching, uh, basically warning in the midst of that. It's a very discouraging ministry, as we've said before. Last week we read about you know, Jeremiah kind of reflecting his little dialogue with the Lord, which to me is just a, um, a really, I just love that chapter. Um, we see an insight into Jeremiah's, just the weariness of his ministry. And sometimes weary, ministry can be weary, but we'll talk about that a little bit today as well. Uh, but anyway, so now we turn the, turn the focus back to sort of the ministry, the message of Jeremiah to the people. And in the midst of that, if you would, just kind of highlight, you know, he's, he's kind of prophesying to the people and preaching to the people. He's also speaking directly to the historical context of the time. And he's also giving some prophecy which will have, um, really, which speaks to our culture today. And so um, we see all that application and we'll try to navigate through that as we go. Is that fair enough? Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. That was awesome. Resounding. <laughs> Affirmative. Uh, thus said, chapter 13, I say 13? 13. Thus, say, thus, thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Now, linen sash, God often used illustrations, right, to teach point. Jesus spoke in parables. Uh, you know, honestly, some of the prophets did some pretty crazy things that we won't go into, and we can just rejoice that he doesn't, um, well, he doesn't ask me to walk around naked in town for a year and a half, or however long it was, um, uh, or, or like Ezekiel, right, lay on my side for, how long was it, like 18 months? A long time. Well, he'll, he'll use the word here many days, we'll just say many days. So I lay on his side for many days, right? While he's cooking up some lentils over uh, over dung, you know, it's kind of kind of get it going like that, and then turn this way for another however many days, and kind of you know, he doesn't ask us to do stuff like that. Thank God, at least that I perceive. Um, so listening to me talk for an hour is really kind of a blessing by comparison, right? Think of it that way. But he used linen sash here. He's, he's kind of got this example. He's, he's going to use this linen sash as, as, a, as a picture. And, you know, I want to highlight just a minute. The linen sash would have been decorative, right? But it was also very functional. And so, you know, they would have, in the ancient world, they wore robes, you know, and, and the sash kind of held things together. And, and you may have noticed the term in Scripture, gird up your loins, right? Well, if you're a guy wearing a dress down to your knees, right, and you want to run or you want to do some heavy work or whatever like that, um, you know, that'd be kind of awkward. And so sometimes what they'd do is they'd, they'd kind of pull it up just above, it's still modest, but above their knees maybe, and, you know, tighten it up with a sash. And so it had a purpose, 
is the point. So it's decorative and functional. Fair enough? Sometimes we wear things that are decorative and functional, right? And uh, so that's, that's the point. I think it's probably worth at least a casual mention that this is a linen sash. And um, linen might be significant. The priests uh, in the Old Testament law were told to wear linen. And the idea, most commentators would say, is that the linen did not cause you to sweat, okay? So the priests, what did the priests do in the Old Testament? They were ministers. And they were to wear this. And, and, you know, you could say this is uh, a stretch symbolically. I probably don't think so. Um, But um, I was listening to Chuck Smith go off on it a little bit uh, this week. And so it's kind of refreshing in my mind that, you know, the minister probably shouldn't have to sweat. Does that make sense? Wait a minute, I thought you're supposed to work hard. Yeah, I'm supposed to work hard, but I'm not supposed to work hard in my own strength. And Chuck Smith used the, word, used the phrase, I'm just, if it seems cheesy, I'm blaming it on Chuck, right? He says, we should, we should minister by inspiration, not perspiration, right? Jesus himself said, you know, take my yoke upon you, right? My, my burden is easy and my, my, yoke, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Right? And so there's a sense in which when we minister, when we, and again, as I hope it's clear by now, we're all ministers. We all have a, 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 a thing that the Lord has called us to do. And, and, yet, and when we do that, we're supposed to be diligent and faithful and, and intentional and all of those things. But if we find ourselves... And I'm saying this because I've done this, and I'm sure we've all done this. Even while we're doing a good thing, right? Galatians says, don't grow weary in doing good, right? Even while we're doing a good thing, sometimes it feels like I'm getting frustrated or I'm having to make it happen or any of that kind of stuff. And I think that's probably, you know, when we're doing that, we probably need to back up and kind of reevaluate. Is the, am I doing the Lord's work or am I doing my work that I think might be the Lord's work? And so, linen sash, no perspiration. That's the point of that. So, verse 3, And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. Now, we just kind of read that in a quick uh, two-second sentence. But the Euphrates, uh, most commentators say where he would have taken it, was about 350 miles away one, uh, one way. So Jeremiah is walking a 700-mile round trip to go stick this linen sash in the cleft of a rock on the edge of the Euphrates River. Now, Everybody in town kind of knows Jeremiah by this time. They say, hey, where are you going? I'm going to the Euphrates. What's wrong with the Jordan? It's right here. Well, God said go to the Euphrates. You ever think about that? What's wrong with the Jordan? Right? God might tell us to do something. And we'd say, well, God, it'd be much more practical to do it this way. To do it my way. Right? So Jeremiah's not interested in practicality. He's interested in obedience. And so uh, he's going to go 700-mile round trip, walk over and just drop this thing in a rock. And probably that would get 
people's attention. Probably get people's attention today if we did something like that. And now it came to pass after many days, we don't know how many, but it was many, that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, another 700 mile round trip, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and I dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. So another 700 mile round trip to go get that ruined sash. Now notice, I want you to notice there are two things about this sash now. How about the decorative appeal? What do you think? Probably smelled, right? It was probably ugly. It was probably dingy. Had no decorative value whatsoever. But also, it wasn't functional. Look here. It was profitable for nothing, we read. Profitable for nothing. So both aspects. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride. I'm not going to ruin Judah and, and Jerusalem, but I'm going to ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. And so now God is bringing the metaphor around, right? Why did you have me take two round trip runs to the Euphrates to go drop that sash in the rock and then go pick it up and demonstrate that it was ugly and profitable for nothing? Why did you do that? Because this is a picture of the pride of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. God is going to ruin its pride, just like he ruined that sash. And notice that there's an interesting thing. When we are faithfully serving the Lord and faithfully doing what we're called to do, we find ourselves as ministers. Did I mention that we're all ministers? Okay, good. We find ourselves as ministers being functional, right? Having a function and being beautiful. Giving off a, you know, a, a, a demonstration to the Lord that gives honor and glory to Him. There's a certain beauty in ministry. There's a certain beauty in ministry that brings honor and glory to the Lord. We've got to be very careful. There's an, that's another subplot. We've got to be very careful not to draw that attention to ourselves, right? But there's a beauty in ministry when people faithfully serve the Lord. And I see this, honestly, in your guys' lives. I tell people all the time about this church. I say, you ought to come to this church. Teaching's awesome. No, I don't say that. I don't say that. I say, the people are amazing. And here's what I love about what I, when I am all the time, I'm all the time being made aware of. That, oh, XYZ person over here has a need, and ABC person took care of that need, and I find out about it a week later, or a month later, or maybe never. That's the body of Christ. I want you to realize that. That's the body of Christ. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. I've, never, I've honestly been a part of a lot of things in my life. But there's just something cool about people working together to do the work of the Lord. And 
I feel like I, I mean, I'm thankful. I mean, maybe it's just the Lord knew who we would be and who I am, but I'm not an orchestrator. I'm not a, um, you don't want me orchestrating your, your little, your little gatherings. I'm not very good at it. And I'm certainly not a good dictator. Thanks. And, uh, and so, wow, that took a long time. Anyway, this church works together. And it's beautiful. It, my point is, it's when, when, when faithful human beings do what they're called to do for the glory of God, it's beautiful. Like a beautiful linen sash. And when they don't, it's ugly. And not only is it ugly, it's profitable for nothing. When they're full of pride. Okay, so let's just work with this a little bit because we got time, right? So let's work with it. So, so if something is beautiful, it draws me to it, right? It has a certain, it, it, it's a draw, right? If a person is full of pride, am I drawn to that person? No, I'm repelled by that person. I'm like, uh, it's talking with one of my kids. Anyway, that's another story. So I'm repelled by that person. And so you get the idea. There's a beauty in serving the Lord. That's the point I want to bring out. A beauty like a, a beautiful linen sash. The pride is ugly. And it's, not, not, it's profitable for nothing. Verse 10, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like the sash which is profitable for nothing. And so I think it's important that we unpack that. I'm going to park on this verse just for a little bit. Because this verse really gives us tremendous insight into the problem. We know the problem. We've been reading about it for 13 chapters now. Judah has, has rejected the Lord. They're full of pride. And God's going to bring judgment. We, that's basically the book of Jeremiah, right? And in that, we see some prophetic picture of yet, uh, of yet future. But the point of the book of Jeremiah, basically, is God's going to judge uh, their rejection of him. But whenever we analyze that, I think it's healthy. Like if I said, for example, we're, we're all a group of people in church, Sunday morning, church, faithful crowd. If I said, anybody want to reject the Lord and just completely say, forget it, I'm done with that Christian thing? If you are so inclined, I'm going to guess you wouldn't be here on Sunday morning. So we're good, we've got nothing to learn, right? No. Because nobody just, well, very few, very rarely, does anybody just say, I'm done. I'm going to reject the Lord. That didn't work. Forget it. But very often, very often, do we see sort of a pattern of events, a sequence of events that can lead to a rejection of the Lord. Is that fair? So let's look at that rejection. Let's look at that pattern. Okay? These people, they walk... They, I'm sorry, they follow the dictates 
of their own hearts. Do you notice that? They refuse my words. They refuse to hear my words. This evil people, verse 10. These evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts. I want to stop there. They follow the dictates of their heart. You know, there's a, there's a phrase in the Old Testament. Walk or follow the dictates of their evil heart is how it's, how it's translated in the King James. The dictates of their evil heart. It's mentioned eight times in the Old Testament. Eight of them are in the book of Jeremiah. They walk or follow after the dictates of their evil heart. Okay? Now, if I dictate something, you know, on the day I used to in my job, I'd have a, uh, what they call a dictaphone, right, before Dragon Software, which is horrible. But anyway, they would, I would have what's called a dictaphone. And I would, well, I'd mumble into the dictaphone. Okay? And then somebody on the other end of the dictaphone types what I said, right? Or if I, if, so if I dictate something, I am, I am saying what needs to happen. I am directing that, right? Maybe a stronger term is a dictator. If I'm a dictator, I am commanding what is to be done by the other person. Is that fair? Well, how does this work in this, in this, in this phrase? These people follow the dictates of their evil heart. They follow after the dictates of the evil heart. So who's the dictator? Break down the grammar for me. They follow the dictates of their evil heart. Who's the dictator? Anybody? The heart. I want you to catch this. I've talked about this before. I've ranted on this before, but I'll probably keep ranting on it. They follow after the dictates of their evil heart. Their evil heart is the dictator. Right? And if you follow the logic, go back and read, this, read the first half of this verse again. Verse 10. This evil people, so number one, they've now, they're now identified as evil. How did they get to that point of evil? They refuse to hear my words. Well, why do they get refuse to hear my words? Because they followed the dictates of their evil heart. Where did this whole sequence start? In their what? Evil hearts. Well, wait a minute. I grew up on Disney. Right? If you go to Disney World, you can still go to heaven, right? Well, so I grew up, you know, if I would just simply wish upon a star, and, you know, you can put together, I, 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 I like to butcher all these uh, ideologies by combining them into one ideological casserole, right? So if I wish upon a star, and if I click my heels together, and if there's enough pixie dust in the air, right, then all I've got to do is follow my heart. And it winds up in every stinking psychology book you'll ever come across. Well, man, all you got to do is just follow your heart. And God forbid... 
Would it ever find its way into a Christian psychology book? All you got to do, man, is follow your heart. Right? Right? Wrong. But that's what we're told, right? Right? There's even um, male and female versions of it. Okay? I won't go off on it because some of you probably read these books and you probably might have liked them. So I won't go crazy. But, you know, the male heart was created a certain way. Right? Maybe like wild at heart. Right? And I was supposed to, you know, that's how I'm made. I was born wild. So I got to follow my heart. And I got to do what my heart says. Oh, my heart says go over here. I feel like Mr. Magoo. My heart says go over here. And I'm like going over here. If I'm not careful, I'll walk off the edge of the stage and break a leg. And I'm I'm following my evil heart. You know, and then there's a female companion version of it even sometimes. And I'm, you know, the point is, Jeremiah himself wrote to me the home run ver- words regarding this. Turn over to the, to the right, chapter 17. Verse 9. The heart. He's talking about the human heart. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The human heart is deceitful. My own human heart, I would argue, can trick me because it is deceitful. My heart tells me things I need that I don't really need. My heart tells me things I deserve that I don't deserve. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. So back to the uh, chapter 13. So, yeah, men are made a certain way. Women are made a certain way. We're all made a certain way. That's all by God. But that heart that we were born with, I mean, we can never not be ourselves, right? But that heart that we were born with must be submitted to the authority of God Almighty by the power of His Holy Spirit and by the instruction of His Word. And if we don't, we're following something that's deceitful and desperately wicked. And what's the process? Next thing you know, I'm following something that's deceitful, something that's desperately wicked. Next thing you know, I uh, refuse to hear His words. I'm identified as an evil people. And then read on the rest of verse verse 10. And walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, and they shall be just like the sash, which is profitable for nothing. So what happens after I follow my evil heart? I stop hearing his words. I'm following the dictate of my evil heart, my deceitful, desperately wicked heart. I then stop hearing his words. I become evil and, and then I worship other gods. So here's the question. Who do we serve? 
Well, I serve the Lord, but I also serve my appetite. I serve the Lord, but I also serve uh, my desire for more. I serve the Lord, but, right? And so whoever we serve is our God. Whoever we worship, that's our God. And if we're not submitted to the Lord, I think we have to be very careful about this. If we're not submitted to the Lord, then we become like this linen sash, lacking the beauty that gives glory to God and profitable for nothing. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be those people. Verse 11, so, for, as the, as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. And so, uh, honestly, I'm such a believer in this uh, sovereignty responsibility spectrum. Have you ever heard me say, talk about the sovereignty responsibility? Raise your hand if you ever heard me talk about the sovereignty responsibility. We had a pastor up in Indianapolis. Tracy would tell you. He got saved on June 2nd, 1975. But why do you remember that date? Because he said it all the time, right? And so I want you guys, you know, kids grew up in this church. They're going to say, my dad always talked about the sovereignty and responsibility spectrum, right? Well, it's real, right? God's sovereignty is very real. Man's responsibility is very real. You know, we, we learn from uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says, Paul tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a responsibility. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God not only gives me the ability to do the right thing, he gives me the desire to do the right thing. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't even want to do the right thing, much less be able to do the right thing. And so therefore, I'm supposed to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. How does that work? I'm, am I working or is God working? God, that's, that's bigger than our brains. But God's sovereignty is very real. And man's responsibility is very real. And whenever I come across one of these verses I want to highlight, here's the, here's the other side of this. I have caused the whole house of Judah and the whole house, I'm sorry, the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they w- may become my people for renown and for praise and for glory. That's a sovereignty statement. Please catch this. That's a God's sovereignty statement. God says, I have caused, I have caused, Who did the work? God. I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. Who's the glue that holds us and God together? Has it got anything to do with me? I don't think so. I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, that beautiful sash that's profitable for a good work for the Lord, but they would not hear. Somehow, they rejected the Lord. Somehow, the Lord allowed their free will to reject Him. How do those things go together? I I don't have an explanation that fits the human brain, but that's okay because God is bigger than the human brain, even yours, right? God is bigger than the human brain. And so, these people, they rejected the Lord. Therefore, 
Verse 12, you shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? So this was a common proverb of the day, you know, everything will be filled, every bottle is going to be filled with wine, kind of like saying, everything's going to work out, everything's going to work out, and so you got this idea, Jeremiah is saying to the people, everything's going to work out, what he means is everything's going to work out according to God's plan, and they say, yeah, we know everything's going to work out. And so sometimes we can use the same words and have fundamentally different meanings, and that's what's going on here. And then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. So... Uh, everything is going to work out, uh, but not according to what they're thinking. And this is God's prophetic plan for, the, for that generation. It's pretty sober to think that God is going to carry out his will in their day. And I think it's also sober to stop and reflect that God's going to carry out his will in our generation. Whatever that is. Whatever that is. And you know, just like God, it's kind of scary. Just like God dealt with the nation of Judah, I think there's a thing. You can pray about this and, and see if this resonates with you. There's a thing that we feel like as, as Americans in 2021 that somehow because we're Americans, we're immune from God's judgment. Right? Well, we know God, God's established this nation. And so God's never going to judge us. Right? And if you're... If you're discerning, you'll catch that vibe across America. Yeah. Even across Christian America uh, in many ways. God will never deal with us. I mean, even like as I say that, the thought of God dealing with us like he dealt with them doesn't sound very patriotic, right? You've heard me talk about this even recently. Doesn't sound very patriotic. And we're supposed to be patriotic. Well, yeah, we're supposed to be patriotic. Sort of to the extent that we're following the Lord, we're supposed to be servants of the Lord. We're supposed to pledge allegiance to God. Right? And so there's just a reality that as we read these pages of what Jeremiah is warning these people, now I'm not saying we should all go to Walmart and stand at the front door and say God's bringing judgment, repent or die. If God tells you to do that, you do that. You'll be like one of those weird prophets. But I'm, you know, I don't know that we're not. I don't know that we're supposed to say that or do that. But we're supposed to be salt and light in the earth, right? And we're no, and we're supposed to never take anything for granted when it comes to the Lord. Let me tell you. You talk about any relationship, husbands. Let me just say this because we're easy targets, right? If you boil down our, if you boil down our marital crimes.
probably they all start with, well, I took her for granted. Right? Any relationship that we take for granted or any blessing that we take for granted, it suddenly becomes vulnerable. It suddenly becomes very vulnerable. And if we take the Lord for granted or what the Lord has done for us or what the Lord has told us or how the Lord has blessed us and we sort of assume because we're children of God, because we've been saved, because He has blessed us, because He has done this, then we're automatically like on autopilot and we don't have to... I mean, again, we're, not work, our, we're saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All that. I get that. I get that. I get that. But our job is to be faithful. And I think if we're not careful, one of our first steps towards unfaithfulness is taking the Lord for granted. Please don't do that. Please don't take Him for granted. Verse 15, hear and give ear. Do not be proud. Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, He turns it into the shadow of death and makes it darkness. And so the warning for all all humanity is to respond to God's Word with humility. And, you know, even so, even when I point out that you know, we won't reject the Lord, but we might take Him for granted. I think sometimes if we go back to those starting points and just make sure that, you know, again, I, I, don't, want this, I don't want today to feel like a trip, but I just I want us to be faithful. I want us to cling to the Lord. I want us to not follow our own evil hearts. I want us to not be proud. What do you say? I'm not proud. My brain always goes back to Peter out on the boat, right? Peter's out on the boat. John 21, I love this. Peter's out on the boat. You know, this is after three years with Jesus, right? Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been raised from the dead. You know, word is around town that Jesus is raised from the dead. He's appeared to several people by now. In the very last chapter in the Gospels, John chapter 21, uh, honestly a great picture of a discouraged, defeated Peter. You know, his last personal interaction up to this time was he denied Jesus three times. He's, he's dejected. What does he do? He says, I'm going fishing. It's not like, it's not like hey, today would be a good day to go fishing. No, it's like, I'm going back to my old life. That thing. You know, I love the Lord, but it's just, I just don't feel very victorious today. And I love this. He fishes all night, and he caught nothing. And there's a guy on the shore. I, lo- I wish I, uh, let's see a video of this. Maybe the Chosen will do it. Hey, Dallas, you ought to do this. So anyway, it's, it's probably like just barely dusk or barely, you know, sunrise. There's a guy on the shore. You can't really tell. Peter can't really tell who he is. But there's a guy on the shore. He's probably some tourist. You ever been to Florida, right? There's a guy fishing. What do you say? 
Come on. Have you caught anything? Right? You, you self-identify as a tourist when you do that. Well, so, this guy on the shore, what's he say? Have you caught anything? No. If, and, and mark my words. You go to Florida. You identify yourself as a tourist. You ask that guy if he's caught anything. Nine times out of ten, is he, like, happy to engage in a conversation with you? He's annoyed by the question. He's heard it too many times. And why has he heard it too many times? And why is he annoyed by the question? Because he has caught nothing, just like Peter. So, tourist says, hey, have you caught anything? No, nothing. We worked all night and have caught nothing. Picture this. The tourist says, hey, once throw your net on the other side. You're the professional fisherman. The tourist just said, hey, why don't you throw your net on the other side? Right? What would you say if you're the professional fisherman? Shut up. Go back north. Go back to Indiana. Right? I love this. For all, the, for all that we could pick on Peter about, Peter's like, sure. Right? And then they say, whoa. That was, that, this is like deja vu. I did this before when I first came to the Lord. Right? That's, that must be, that's not a tourist. That's, that's Jesus. Right? But there's something in Peter so we all say, I'm not proud. A proud person always identifies himself as saying, I'm not proud. That's one common theme among all proud people. They say, I'm not proud. And in my mind, I always like, could I be that fisherman that would say, yeah, sure. We have a saying in our, our kids can tell you from a young age. We want to learn how to say, yeah, sure. Hey, can you take the trash out? Mm, he did it yesterday. I did it that you might, um, let's see, and pull out the count. It's not my day today. No. <laughs> right? You take the trash out? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. You throw your net on the other side of the boat? Yeah, sure. And pride keeps us from saying, yeah, sure. Nine times out of ten, it's not because you've got a broken leg. It's because of pride that keeps you from saying, yeah, sure, to whatever the Lord would have you saying or have you doing. And so he says, hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you're looking for light, he turns up turns it into the shadow of death and makes it a dense darkness. So there's a sequence of things that happens as we walk away from the Lord. And it can be as subtle as, as just a little bit of pride. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Can I show you this? Can I, can I point this out? Here's the heart of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, but if you will not hear it, are they going to hear it? No, they're not going to hear it. But if you'll not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock 
has been taken captive. Jeremiah sees the prophetic picture. He knows that because they reject him, they're going to reject the word of the Lord and continue to reject the word of the Lord. He knows there's going to be judgment. He knows there's going to be taken captive. And I want you to catch this. He's not angry about it. What does he do? He weeps. He's known as the weeping prophet. He's compassionate. You know, as children of God, we have a duty in our own lives to be faithful, to not be proud, all of these things, to, to not follow our heart, but to follow the Lord. And yet there's a very strong reality that there will be people who will reject the Lord. And it's honestly taken me a long time to get this around my head, or to get my head around this, that as people reject the Lord, I need to not see them as the enemy. I need to see them as objects of compassion. I need to not be angry with them. I need to be burdened for them. Because if I'm angry at them, I'm going to yell at them. But if I'm burdened for them, I'm going to pray for them. Which is more effective, praying for them or yelling at them? For sure. Jeremiah is an amazingly compassionate man. Say to the king and the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for you shall, your rule shall collapse. The crown of your glory, the cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. And so the, the king and the queen mother, this is, uh, most commentators say in this context, this is a reference to Jehoiachin and his mother Nehushta. Now, you recall Josiah had, we won't go through all this, Josiah had basically three sons. Jehoahaz uh, was, his, was the first king, that was his first son. Then the second son was Jehoiakim, and uh, he was carried off to Babylon, and then Jehoiakim's son Jehoiachin was king, and then that was for a brief time, and then Zedekiah, the final son, uh, that's the line of, Jer- of Josiah. But anyway, this is Jehoiachin. He was eight years old when he became king, and so his, he and his mother, uh, uh, the queen, the queen mother, would have been carried off. So Jeremiah is speaking very, very specifically to uh, the historical context. Lift up your eyes and see. Those who come from the north, where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? And so when destruction comes, they're not going to have any excuse. They will have been warned. In our day, if destruction comes, we will have been warned, right? Proverbs 22, verse 3 and 27, verse 12, it's repeated, says, A prudent man foresees evil or danger, some translations say, and he hides himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. If you see danger coming, take cover. Simple as that, right? If we see danger coming to our society, seek the Lord. And it's not about whether we strategize or whether we build up bunkers or whether we got enough grain stashed away in our basement. It's about seeking the Lord. If you want to do those things, that's fine. But it's, full, it's, it's fundamentally about seeking the Lord. Uh, 
And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. So don't be surprised if judgment comes to a sinful nation. And honestly, as sensitively as I can say this, the moral climate of our day in America, if that calls for God's judgment, should any of us be surprised? I mean, that's God's business, right? I'm not saying God is judging America, but I'm just saying, I heard Chuck Smith say years ago, if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Now, those are Chuck's words, not mine. But the reality is, if judgment comes, we shouldn't be surprised based on what we know to be the moral condition of our land. Now, can we fix all that? No, we've got to be responsible citizens and we can do what we can do. But fundamentally, as individuals, we focus on the Lord. We serve the Lord. We surrender to Him. Verse 24, Therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. And I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, the abom- your abominations on the hills of the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, will you still not be made clean. And again, this is what happens when we follow our evil hearts. Sin brings judgment. Sin brings judgment. But God is merciful, right? God is merciful. (laughs) Let's pause there. Is that fair? It's a demonstration of God's mercy, right? (laughs) I got notes for chapter 14. It's killing me. But uh, just like the linen sash, we maybe need a word picture of God's mercy. Here's the deal. God is good. God wants so much to have fellowship with his children. He makes it all available. He causes... If he caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to him, don't you think he does that for us? Right? And so it's not dependent on us. We don't have to keep this relationship going. We just have to enjoy the privilege of it. Right? And I think there's a, you know, people all the time get hung up on, can you lose your salvation? And I I don't even want to go there. But here's what I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose an ounce of intimacy with the Lord. Whether or not I, I mean, personally, I don't want to go there. 
I don't think I'll lose my salvation if I stumble and fall. God's grace and God's mercy holds my relationship with him together better than that, right? John tells us, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand, right? If we're God's children, right? Parents, if you ever have a prodigal child, right? Do they stop being your child? No. But the fellowship can be impaired, right? God wants our fellowship. He makes it happen. He, give, he causes it to happen. We have to walk in it. Be careful about your own evil heart. Be careful not to follow that heart. If that heart is surrendered to the Lord, awesome. And if it feels like an emotional connection, that's awesome. Don't count on that. Just follow the Lord obediently. Don't follow your emotions. Don't follow pride. Be careful about pride. Ask the Lord to show us those areas where we have pride that we may not even realize. And at the end of the day, I believe we can all look forward to, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that you hold that relationship together. We thank you that you long to have intimate fellowship with us and that you make it happen. Lord, help us to see those, those, those chuck holes along the way that can trip us up. And help us to be diligent to avoid them. so that we can have the abundant life that you spoke of. Not just eternal life, but abundant life here on earth. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.